Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Agbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. We're back with candy copyrights and Nintendo doom and gloom. Also, Microsoft and Machinima are in hot water over an advertising scandal. And something actually happened at CES. Plus, our interviews this week are tied into our theme month. We have designer Damien Sommer on his game without question. And the director of Fort McMoney talks about documentary game making and the ethics of game design. Before all that... Let's talk about candy. Candy. Delicious candy. Well, not delicious candy. Uh, So King, the developer of the uh, insanely popular uh, Match 3 Facebook and mobile game Candy Crush Saga, has succeeded in copywriting both the words candy and saga. Which is posing a great deal of problems to games like The Banner Saga, which have been using the word saga. It's a saga, you know, or any other number of games that use the word saga, like Dragon Ball Z Saga, or Square Enix's Saga, or the 2008 MMO Saga. Ass terms. So in February of last year, King applied for a trademark on the word candy as it pertains to video games, clothing, and educational products. Uh, They've also been in various stages of owning the copyright for the word saga, uh, at least in pertaining to video games, since 2011. Uh, the Saga part kind of makes sense, because all of King's games are like Bubble Wish Saga, Candy Crush Saga. They're all Saga games. They can kind of conceivably be thought of as a series. Right. Um, but uh, as of December of last year, their trademark on Saga has been suspended until they provide some paperwork they need to file due to them being a company based in Malta and not the U.S. And as a result, it's much harder for them to retain the trademark in another country. Um, However, the trademark on Candy was approved on January 15th, uh, and people now have 30 days to oppose the trademark, uh, and they probably will. They are saying that only when it is in the title of the product, and it is a game, clothing item, or educational software. Now, there's also stuff like Candy Couture, which is a clothing brand, and I'm sure there are definitely candy-themed educational products because kids love candy. So it's definitely not... All items of candy. Right. Right. It just seems to be whatever is small enough that won't fight back. So, for example, uh, Benjamin Shu, the developer of an iOS game called Candy Slots, it actually has a much longer SEOE name, but the uh, the app's icon says Candy Slots, and that's all that matters, uh, was told to change the name or get it off the App Store by uh, Apple, who who kind of overzealously started serving notices of opposition to any game with the word candy in the title. Now... This stuff started coming up because, I mean, they have a little bit of justification in that it is really, really common for popular mobile and Facebook games to be cloned. It happens all the time. We've seen this with very popular games, and we've seen this with sim games, and the the downside of this is that the copyright or the, the games get muddled. You're not sure which one is the original, you're not sure which one is the most authentic. Zynga does this all mm-hmm. the time. Um, but... Candy Slots looks like a very different game than right. Candy Crush Saga. It's very hard to mix them up. Again, candy is such a generic term that you don't assume with anything with the word candy in it is generic. I think in explaining this to somebody the other day, I said this would be like if Nintendo copyrighted the word Super because of Super Mario. Exactly. Like, it's just not quite something you can trademark. And also, the game industry is actually fairly um, loose when it comes to uh not specific trademarks, like, for instance, you can't make your own Mass Effect game. That's a very specific term. But when it comes to elements of game design and elements of titles, I mean, 
to be fair, uh, game game titles are fairly generic. I mean, right. it's something revelation, something die of war, revenge of the shooting. So I mean, that's and because that is so generic, it's so hard to trademark. But Candy, I think, fits right in there of generic titles that don't really belong. Um, right. Um, when Shu, uh, the developer of Candy Slots, contacted King's Paralegals, he was told that the name led to confusion and damage to the Candy Crush brand and that having the word slots there did not change Candy enough. It's... But, I mean, I think the title is Candy Crush. Like, right. I don't reckon... If exactly. you say Candy... If, if I said Candy to you, right, you're, you do not think, oh, you're talking about Candy Crush. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm talking about, like, Jawbreakers or something, or Jelly Beans. Yeah, yeah. No, Candy Crush is fairly identifiable. If someone has mentioned to me Candy Crush, I'm not going to think of, oh, is that when you put, like, Pop Rocks in um, Crush Orange Drink? Like, no, you're... That's, you should try that. Yeah, yeah that sounds <laughs> actually delicious. stop the show and give that a shot. Yeah, yeah, okay. We're back in, like, a couple of seconds. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, Candy Crush, if you were to copyright Candy Crush, or trademark Candy Crush, that would be like trademarking, say, Pokemon. It's a combination yeah. of two words that is only identifiable as your thing. When you're talking about just common English words, it it reminds me a lot of a couple years ago when uh, Tim Langdell was a guy who was co- uh, copyright trolling over the word Edge as it pertained to video games and video game media. So Mirror's Edge, Edge Magazine. Now, Banner, as we mentioned earlier, but Banner Saga has been recently filed a complaint. Um, and in an official statement, King said... King has not and is not trying to stop Banner Saga from using its name. We do not have any concerns that Banner Saga is trying to build on our brand or our content. However, like any prudent company, we need to take all appropriate steps to protect our IP, both now and in the future. In this case, that means preserving our ability to enforce our rights in cases where other developers may try to use the Saga mark in a way which infringes on our IP rights and causes player confusion. If we had not opposed Banner Saga's trademark application, it would be much easier for real copycats to argue that their use of Saga was legitimate. So in English, they are trying to stop Banner Saga from being called Banner Saga. It's just totally not their fault, you guys. The thing, it also fits in with a weird glitch of trademark law where... If you do get a trademark, you can't be selective of who you sue. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if you're Twitter, if um, you may like it that someone has a T-shirt that says Twitter on it because that's free advertising, right? But you still, ha- if you want to retain that right when it comes to, say, other programs or other branding rights, you can't be selective about who you sue because then other companies can point to say, hey, look, you let this guy manufacture his T-shirt. That's totally the same thing as what we we're doing. Right. But the this just seems so irrelevant <laughs> that they're just being too damn zealous. Right. Well, this. I mean, even this, though, they are being selective. Like, I haven't seen, you know, Hasbro or Parker Brothers, whoever, haven't mentioned that their iOS port of Candyland has, yeah. been, has been hit with uh, notice of opposition. And honestly, if we're talking about a game related to candy, I'm thinking about Candyland far before I'm thinking about Candy Crush. In response, developers have started an online game jam called Candy Jam, which um, basically tasks them with creating uh, games that has to do something uh, with candy and other copyright uh, video game words like Memory, Saga, Scroll, Apple, and Edge. So, hey, developers, if you're looking to... um, Troll this company as far as possible. This seems like a great way to do it. Make sure to make the memory memories of an Apple Edge saga. It's my uh, next favorite game. Scroll of the memory Apple Edge saga. It's a it's an RPG RTS wall running game. Sequel to Shaq, uh, Shaq Fu. Perfect. Shaq Fu Two Memories of Shaq. Speaking of remembering a time that was much better than now, um, Nintendo. 
is thinking back to when the Wii came out. Because um, after showing a strong last quarter, Nintendo's back in the red after a very disappointing holiday season, um, which has forced them to change their yearly forecasts in a fairly dramatic way. Yeah, lots of slashing here. For example, Nintendo predicted they would be selling 9 million Wii U uh, units this fiscal, fiscal year, which they have now cut down to 2.8 million. Uh, that makes for about 6.25 million Wii U sold since uh, launch by March 31st. For some context, the PS4 has hit 4 million units in six weeks, and the Xbox One has 3 million in a very similar time frame. The N- Nintendo also downgraded 3DS sales predictions from 18 million to a still respectable 13.5 million, but that's their cash cow at this point. I mean, that's the only thing that's profitable for them. I mean, and I mean, it's the only thing that's getting consistently great games at the moment. Uh, The original Wii is also missing uh, sales mark, dropping from a predicted 2 million to 1.2 million, which that thing is still selling. That's amazing. The fact that there are, they expected any sales is beyond me. They should have Um, called that a happy bonus and be done with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Now, as for their software, it's also Wii U games are down 19 million from 38 and 3DS to 66 million from 80. Now, the the Wii U you can kind of expect the Wii U came out last year they had a bunch of launch games and they really if you were going to, if you had those consoles and you were into those console those, that console you were going to buy what was ever available right later on not as much choice <laughs> there's not as you no one has the impetus six months down the line to say well you know what I I have Nintendo Land I don't yep. need this other thing I, well t- to be fair what else would they be buying Mario 3D World. That's yeah. about Pikmin 3 and Mario 3D World. That's about it for the big games. 100, uh, Wonderful 101 was a disappointment. Uh, tanked. Tanked hard. Oh, God. And... You know Hideki Kami is talking about making a Wonderful 102, right? Oh, no. <laughs> he's he, he. Someone needs to read him um, a his sales report. He's such a hopeful man. I yeah. wish I could have his optimism. In any case, it's um, then Nintendo is expecting to see revenues of... $5.7 billion, which is down from 8.8 and losses of $239.6 million. Again, down from profits of $527.2 million. So we've gone down from expected profits of half a billion dollars to losses of a quarter of a billion dollars. It's nuts. It's the... 3DS was the top-selling console in the U.S. in 2003, but that's still... 2013. Sorry, 2013. And in any case, this still wasn't enough to meet Nintendo's expectations, though the handheld market is doing better um, considering that it's mostly dominated from the iPhone. Um, The Wii U, of course, is the big loser here. Even after a price cut, a major Mario, and more than a year on the market... It still hasn't been able to turn around its fortunes. Now, where was the 3DS about a year into it? About a year ago, the 3DS was also dead in the water. So, and it, it kind of came back. I mean, it's had a disappointing turn. About a year ago, that was Mario 3D Land, I believe, was like last November, was November of 2012. And we weren't really, I think we got Fire Emblem around this time last year. That was This was about when stuff was looking to pick up for the 3DS. And so, I mean, we... We could expect some kind of turnaround for the Wii U. Theoretically, if Nintendo calls some sort of amazing surprise Nintendo Direct with all of their big franchises, that could maybe keep the Wii U afloat until E3 when we either hear something big or Nintendo starts talking about maybe two or three years down the line what their next move is for their consoles. 
which which would be interesting. It would be uh, a good a big surprise if they decided to jump ahead with whatever project that they had been planning for several years down the line and get that out earlier. I have a feeling you won't see them kill off the Wii U anytime soon simply because they don't want to just totally ruin whatever consumer base they have. Yeah, that's and that would that would really show weakness right there instead of trying to get show, trying to show working with what they have. Um Nintendo's share price took a dip, dropped by 18%, and um, that was going down to $114 a share, which is their lowest ever. Which, compared, which uh, I mean, back in 2001, they had 158 and that was after the 3DS price. Sorry. <laughs> We're going way back in time for this. I don't know what's up in my head. Anyway, the, after the 3DS, you price keep writing cut. 2001 instead of 2014. Yes. <laughs> you you want to work your way back up to the year of Luigi. <laughs> It still isn't over. It's not. Well, it doesn't officially end until February. Can't wait for them to announce the year of Pikachu. <laughs> now, we're not looking at the end of Nintendo. No. Here. No, they they have, as has been stated plenty of times, they have over $10 billion in liquid assets and bonds, and even more in long-term investments. Uh, another bad year isn't really enough to sink the ship, but it is more than enough to rock the boat. Uh, Nintendo president Satoru Iwata, who has been with the company for almost a decade at this point, says he won't step down just yet, even in light of failure to hit sales targets and dropping shares. Though, to be fair, it's not like Iwata leaving would do anything but kind of be a symbolic gesture uh, for shareholders. It's also not like they have anybody who could take over the business side, you know, in a week. Yeah, and to be fair, Iwata was there when the Wii came out. He was kind of the shepherd of that I mean, he was also around when they uh, announced that they would have a pulse sensor. Um, but uh, you know, you actually personally hired Robbie Drums <laughs> for that E3 conference that way back when. Iwata's my favorite part of E. I would really miss him. If he uh, yeah, that's the thing. I, that's the real reason I don't. It's not even a business thing at this point. I just, I just love the guy. It's like, it's like, uh, it's like when uh, Shuei Yoshida comes out, just like a big teddy bear telling you about the new video games. Still, despite all of this, they're considering corporate restructuring, um, which is. Uh, New for Nintendo. Nintendo has not been through a bout of corporate restructuring in a long time. Since about 2005 when Iwata came in and restructured all their development team. In any case, that's, I mean, hopefully Nintendo can work their way back. Um, Iwata says they're looking for ways to leverage the mobile market. Um, I mean, I assume they're not going to be entering the App Store themselves simply because that's a terrible, terrible idea. But learning from the App Store successes would be a good way to kind of bring yourself back from the brink. Uh, you can't really play just the tip with the App Store. Once you're in, it's a uh, full race to the microtransaction bottom of the barrel. Speaking of small amounts of money given out to people... Um, and the letter M. And the letter M. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by alliteration. This episode is brought to you by me not stabbing myself <laughs> next to a microphone. Um, your headline for this one is Microsoft and Machinima's Machiavellian market Marketing Machinations. Which is also my favorite Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> Microsoft and Machinima have partnered up to bribe YouTubers to talk about the Xbox One. Which is pretty damn nuts because they then, it was just speculation with a bit of evidence and followed by Microsoft saying, yeah, we did it. So what? Yeah. Just don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> What's up? So Microsoft and Machinima were offering any Machinima video partners, i.e. YouTube channels that are officially affiliated with the Machinima channel, uh, $3 for every 1,000 views for any video that featured 30 seconds or more of Xbox One game footage and mentioned the console by name. It also had to be a positive mention. You couldn't they say that and then say stunk, stunk donkey balls. <laughs> that, um, that would not net you the same agreement. Also You'd actually be shot on sight if you said the word X-Bone. <laughs> Don Matrick would drive up to your house, throw his garbage in I through thought, your window. I thought you were Zynga now. I'm never with Zynga. <laughs> 
Um, Oil to the end. This, this, <laughs> the, the most complicated part about this is they couldn't tell anyone. They could have this deal. They could get the money. They could talk about the Xbox One positively, but they could tell no one <laughs> that they that they received this contract. According to the legal agreement, which was leaked online, video creators, uh, sorry, whoops, they, yeah, they, they cannot say anything positive. They must keep quiet. They must, quote, keep the details of the promotional agreement confidential in order to qualify for payment. So if you did say anything mean or you did tell anybody that you were getting money for this, you were no longer getting money, which mm. goes against some FTC guidelines. It It's bribery. It's straight up bribery. Like, it's straight up giving people money so that they, they say, say nice things. things. Yeah. It is a marketing strategy that has been tried with video game magazines in the past. Mm-hmm. And then video games magazines and websites wisened up because there was a lot of talk in the industry about how the relationship between journalists and the industry. And then they said, well, you know who doesn't think about this all that much? Why is Bill Cosby in charge of Microsoft's (laughs) PR department? Oh, that's such a great poll for them. That was a really clever move on their part. He really speaks to the youth generation of today. According to FTC guidelines, there must be a full disclosure in the case of a connection between an endorser and the seller of the advertised product that that might materially affect the weight or credibility of the endorsement. Which basically means if you're getting something from a company exchange for talking about something... You need to say so. You can't just... I mean, we see this all the time in websites, newspapers. This has been brought to you by yeah. so-and-so company. They, the ad is, you know, next to them. Like, you know this is what the... Ad, this is an advertisement. This is not them necessarily supporting it. This is merely they've been paid to promote it. Exactly. Meanwhile, in this case, like you said, it is straight-up bribery. And we're definitely seeing that, you know, game companies seem to choose to pay these minuscule amounts. $3 for 1,000 views. I believe Microsoft's cap was $3,750 or something like that. Minuscule amounts of money to these YouTube promoters in bribery. Because it's easier to deal with them than it is to deal with the press. Which makes sense. I mean, these these are guys who are eager for any kind of relationship with a major publisher, especially a hardware designer... And they don't have the same, they haven't been kind of brought through the same amount of scrutiny. The audience is younger. The crowd is a lot, not quite looking for journalistic integrity. Mm-hmm. So they they take this thing and they take this thing without really take thinking about it. it. We'll yeah. take advantage of it. Um, the campaign ended on January 16th and only actually lasted two days in which Microsoft received the 1.25 million views they were looking for according to their contract with Machinima. As far as we know, nobody's actually getting money anymore. Uh, but Remember that those 1.25 million views that they got in two days carries because people will continue watching those videos. Those videos are still up there. It's they. I mean, they got uh, they got the 1.25 million. That is a ton of views and a ton of content. I can't. I wouldn't be surprised if they did this again or are doing it or a different company is doing it. I could see EA pulling this kind of stunt. I mean, considering all the the mistakes they've made this year. Yeah, Machinima says they usually ask content creators to mention any promotions going on, and quote that didn't happen here, and we're evaluating why. Uh, Microsoft is dropping this like. A hot potato and says it was not on them. Confidentiality claims were all on Machinima signed the agreement. Uh, and they have asked Machinima to bring all videos up to FTC standards. Quote, we have asked Machinima not to post any additional Xbox One content as part of this media buy. And we've asked them to add disclaimers to the videos that were part of this program, indicating they were part of paid advertising. Right. Yeah, I have a feeling Machinima won't be... I mean, I have a feeling Machinima will be doing much more of this, but they might be a little bit warier of being... They're getting their pantsuit off of them. Well, hopefully, you know, 
hopefully we move into a future where then to, though, to be fair, if the YouTubers ever start developing their their integrity too, then publishers will find a different place to go. Well, I'm too depressed about the present, so let's go back two weeks ago to a place that was more crowded and filled with sweaty people than um, than since E3. An anime convention? An anime convention. <laughs> that would be, yes, that's true. <laughs> no, we're not talking about an anime convention. We're talking about CES. So, the Consumer Electronics Show. Uh, so there was two big p- pieces of news that came out of CES that's kind of worth mentioning, talking about as it pertains to video games, and that's PS Now and Steam Machines. Now, what the heck is PS Now? So if you remember back in 2012, Sony bought the video game streaming service Gaikai for $380 million and said they'd be using it to, they'd be putting it to use on the PS4 for a new Sony streaming service, which we finally found out about two weeks ago at CES, where they announced that Gaikai is being used on a service called PlayStation Now, a cloud-based streaming service for your PS4, PS3, Vita, Sony TV, tablet, and phone. So the idea is that they can either get attached to the PlayStation Now subscription service, or they can rent an individual game for a certain period of time, kind of cutting out the middleman of Blockbuster or here, Rogers Video, which has... Neither of them exist anymore. Here, cutting out the middleman of nobody. (laughs) (laughs) And reintroducing renting as a concept. Um... And, st- and these will be streamed off of PS3s in server bays onto their Sony device of choice. Apparently, Sony actually had to redesign the PS3 for these server bays so they could fit something like 10 PS3s on one server board. Yeah, I mean, they haven't quite explained fully how it's going to work. It- I imagine it's just a bunch of cell processors taped together with Band-Aids. Those <laughs> things are nightmares. It's it's actually just powered by the soul of um, of uh, Ken Kudaragi. Exactly, like it's just Kideo Kojima's vengeful ghost floats between the machines, <laughs> angry that Metal Gear Solid Four was uh wasn't wasn't lauded by critics and fans alike. He's just so disappointed that not enough microwaves had the cell processor installed <laughs> and could not communicate with your PS3. Um, now, at CES, Sony was demoing The Last of Us, Beyond Two Souls, God of War Ascension, and The Puppeteer. Um, but they, the servers, and they, 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 uh, journalists who were there said that worked pretty well, but the servers are also down the hall. Right. So that doesn't really make for a great example of how the service is going to work. They also haven't mentioned the price, and, um, we haven't actually seen it work on a PS3 or a PS4 yet. They've only been showing them off on Bravias and, uh, and Vitas. Yep. Now, Vita support is probably going to come later. Um, Sony's upcoming to 2014 Bravia TV will have PS Now functionality whenever they come out. And the beta is set for end of January with a full launch in summer. Isn't it weird that you have to say whenever they come out? We're so used to solid release dates when it comes to video <laughs> games. And the TVs are just like, I don't know, whenever the hell they come off the boat. I think it's because televisions are just a, diff- a vastly different medium yeah. where you can kind of expect them to pop up. And <laughs> you, nope. just to, you just go to Best Buy one day. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's what video games used to be back in the NES days. There's no actually early game. A lot of early games don't actually have solid release dates. It's just whenever they were unloaded and sent to stores. See, when I was a kid, I thought they were just you planted a seed in the ground somewhere, and it was ever whenever they were ripe, they were plucked off the plant and brought to your local dispensary of game supplies. Is that why you buried a copy of Final Fantasy X two, hoping you could grow Final Fantasy X three? That is actually being made, and I didn't have to plant anything. <laughs> Except for a few well-placed bribes. <laughs> <laughs> In any case, the um, the other piece of news was Steam Machines, and we've talked about a bit a bit about this on the the show before. But the the thing is that they've actually we actually have some um, we actually have some concrete data instead of rumors and speculation on third-party Steam Machines. So what's been going on with these? Right. So um, the Steam Machines, if you remember, are Valve's play for the living room. 
uh, but seem to be more of an extension of the Steam ecosystem rather than a standalone device. But at CES, they revealed the list of initial companies who are making their own machines. And we've got Alienware, Alternate Cyberpower PC, Digital Storm, Falcon, Falcon Northwest, Gigabyte, iBuyPower, Material.net, Next, Origin, Scan Computers, WebHallen.com, Zotac, and MainGear, which all sound like amazing cyberpunk hacker uh, pseudonyms. It does look like they all came out in the late 90s, which I think is true. Um, Valve says that they're working behind the scenes with more partners before the launch. Price range from Alienware's $500 model, $499, uh, which is comparable to the Xbox One or PS4, to the Falcon Northwest Tiki, which will run you $6,000. Um, please buy if you are crazy or want the highest definition version of Eurotrain uh, Simulator. You can run on your massive television. I would love to run your train simulator in my in the background. I just let it drive itself. Meanwhile, yeah, just, it's like a fireplace or an aquarium, just your train simulator. Exactly, it's like a nice screensaver that I have to pay six thousand dollars for. <laughs> six thousand sixty bucks. Uh, meanwhile, at their Steam Dev Days, Valve also showed their new and improved Steam controller. They have dropped the touchpad in the middle in favor of two sets of cross-oriented buttons and moving the twin trackpads to a slightly higher position on the side of the controllers. The buttons and pads are also laid out almost like a Wii Pro controller, Wii U Pro controller, with higher sticks and lower buttons as opposed to the DualShock controller, which is the exact opposite. Right. It's just... What do you expect? Sticks on the bottom, buttons on top. Yeah. This is buttons on the bottom, pads on top. And it is the inverse of the Xbox controller, which is diagonal. Right. Uh, rumors have it that the ghost mode, which was uh, which enabled what was being seen on the touchscreen to be overlaid transparently on the game screen, rendered the ha- rendered a touchscreen pointless in the first place yeah which isn't surprising uh though i don't really love the idea of overlays uh more buttons should also allow the controller to be more compatible with traditional controller based games uh such as euro train simulator 2014 boy game uh, of the century the one thing that is kind of bugging me about these machines is that if we're talking about the lowest one which runs at 500 dollars, and the lowest ones are supposed to, these are the cheap models that are supposed to be mainly for projecting whatever's on your high no, no, end this is not the streaming boxes these are not the streaming these boxes. are not the streaming boxes those weren't shown this is a box that can stream but also is essentially a xbox one or ps4 Okay, so these are these are the ones that you can actually buy and get something and play powerful a ba- yeah play them. a game play a game on without needing another computer. Okay, these are not the streaming boxes which Valve hasn't really shown off at all. Uh, Valve is also sh- showing off their own personal prototype, uh, which is strange considering they want they don't seem to be wanting to do that, but they seem to be very proud that they built their own box. But there's a lot of European developers uh, who took artsy black and white photos of the new Steam controller. So it's very hard to get a look at. Right now, as far as I can tell, it is black and white and wood grain like the Atari 2600. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, that's it for, for news. Moving on to interviews. So, for the last few weeks, we've run a series of articles on our website. Built2Play.ca. On the limits of a video game. Like, at what point is a video game a book? Or do we even need to win in a game? What does a video game mean? Anyway, when we were posing these questions, it got me thinking. There are so many other kinds of games that we don't explore as often as we could. And that's when we remember Damien Summer. Damien is a game designer in Toronto, best known for making The Yog. Last year, he was coming home from an art festival when he had an idea for a new social game. He ran to his computer, ready to make it, but within seconds, gave up. It wasn't going to work. Okay, so so uh, the the design was like I was start like my starting point for des- like design wise 
um, was a game called Button, uh, which is made by, I'm pretty sure it's Daigut Fabric, um, who, like, which is an indie games collective down in uh, Scandinavia somewhere, and all those countries kind of blend together, and I feel really bad about saying that. Um, but but they're from that area, and um, they made a game called Button, and what Button is, is it's like a, it's a, like a multiplayer game uh, in which, and it's a video game in which um, each player has a button and uh, the game, like the screen will say, all right, everyone take 10 steps back. Um, so everyone will take 10 steps back. And then the screen will then say like, uh, pr- whoever presses their button 10 times first wins. So then everyone's rushing to their button after they step ten- back 10 times or 10 steps they're rushing to get their button and push it as many times as they can. Um, and then they'll get a point, like whoever does it first. Uh, but like, there's also like, and I really like the physicality that was involved in like, and the game is super simple on like a very basic level. Right. But, but then it becomes like this really weird social interaction that's happening solely because of this video game. Um, Cause people are pushing each other out of the way. They're blocking each other's buttons. And like, there's different, there's different like tasks that you have to do for each one. Like sometimes it's like, hold your button for like three seconds or another one is like, don't push your button. In which case, like the first person to run up will like push everyone else's buttons. Um, so, so that was my starting point was like, okay, I like games or I'd like to make a game that does something similar in, in which like, the game is telling you to do something and you're you or and you have to do it outside of the game but it, like there's nothing inside of the game really that enforces that interaction like you don't have to take 10 steps back right um so so then so so I that was my starting point and then I went and I said like okay well it would be cool if you like had to like cast spells on each other that would cause you to like become more and more like uh not able to like function properly uh but you like so like less and less able to actually like hold the controller and actually play the game um so like i i got it like the theme i had in my head was like psychics that are just basically like using the their psychic powers to like disable each other in like really intense ways um so like if you couldn't use your right hand anymore like the flavor was going to be that like it was a psychic like it, somebody's using their psychic power to like lock off that part of your brain. So you can't use your right hand. Like that was, that was what I was going for. Um, and so, but in my head I was like, well, if these battles are going to be like really fast um, and like, I want, I wanted them to be like real time, like maybe like a top down shooter style battle system. But like, how can I implement all of these, all of these things uh, to work on players like it's not uh, like and how do i infor- like have the players actually properly enforce that because it could start to get really complicated um so like almost immediately i was like like that's that's what was running through my head at the time like within the like a like three seconds um so so i was like nope and i just closed it because it was it was too big of a problem and i realized like right then like that a that a card game would play a lot like with those rules a lot better so instead he made a card game without question it's a game about the social contract and 
That's a hard game to program. You know when you hang out with your friends, you usually do things like wear clothes and walk normally and don't point out that they have a big zit on their face. No one really agrees that there are rules to hanging out, we just accept them. Without Question is about adding more rules to that contract. Damien explains this best. It's a party game uh, in which you play rules on one another, like you have a bunch of cards in your hand and all the cards have different rules on them and so uh, you play a rule on somebody else and it would cause them to have to uh, obey that rule, essentially. And the entire game's about trying to get your friends to break the rules of the game. And if they break, they lose, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, like, you gradually gain more and more, like, negative points, and then whoever has the least at the end of the game wins. What kind of weird situations have you built up with those cards? I mean, you mentioned the cord around your neck, and I've seen, like, you can't touch the floor, or and you have to, like, or another one where you have to beatbox um, yeah. everything you say. How? What kind of situations have you seen pile up? Um, the craziest situation I've ever seen, and it's, like, completely broken, and I'm not even sure if I should fix it or not, is there's a card in the game that's, like, the meanest card in the game, and it's called Meltdown. And whoever you play it on will have to play their entire hand out on themselves. But there's another card called Amplify. And what Amplify does is it takes a card on the table and applies its effect to everyone. Oh, God. Um, so so if you manage to melt down somebody who has Amplify in their hand, they can amplify the meltdown that's still on the table. Uh which will cause everyone to play their hands on themselves. And the first time it happened, like, we were sitting there, we were sitting there, and one of my friends is like, oh, I'm going to amplify the meltdown. And I'm like, wait, you can't do that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I realized that, wait, no, there is no rule against that. That works perfectly. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that's kind of the craziest thing i mean what did it look like i mean what, what was what was uh what was this group of people end up ha what did they have to do in that situation i mean like it, it basically everything the game had was being shown at that one point the classic combo definitely happened in this game um which is uh you can't touch chairs you can't touch the floor you can't touch the table <laughs> <laughs> The real limit to this card game, though, is that it's murky. Some of the cards need to be interpreted. When it says, I can't touch the floor, do my shoes count? Or does the carpet on top of the hardwood count? And that's what actually attracted Damien away from video games. A computer doesn't interpret code. 1 plus 2 is always going to be 3. But humans have that possibility. If you can't touch the floor, do your shoes still count as you touching the floor? Because, like, you don't actually touch the floor that often. Uh, but are the shoes part of you then? Um, is being on a carpet not the floor? Uh, like just kind of things like that. Like I like the fuzziness that that creates because every group can have their own rules. Like somebody could like throw their sweater onto the ground and just sit on that. Right. Um, and then and then like everyone will be like, okay, yeah. But other people might be like, no, that's not allowed. Um, you must hover somebody, in the air. Yeah. Well, somebody one time was like, okay, you must be seated, but you can't touch chairs and you can't touch the floor. Well, let me just grab this stool. And I was like, that's that's pretty clever. <laughs> like, is a stool a chair? Like, uh, All these so, harsh existential questions are being brought yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I, but I like it. I like it. It, it. 
it makes everyone have to like just kind of discuss things and that's what i like is i like making people have to talk to each other about weird things and yet despite it being a more human game a more interesting game a card game is much harder to get into people's hands well i wouldn't say this shocked me but like this is the biggest hurdle for me is like how do i get this game into people's hands because uh it costs a lot of money to print. There's like a huge upfront cost. Um, and then there's also like, how do I get this game into stores? Um, how do I like talk to publishers about this game? Like that's, this is something I've never had to do before because all of my games are just self-published, distributed online, right? Um, so, so that's sort of the biggest hurdle right now that we have is, is kind of how... Like, how are we going to do this? And, like, we've talked about crowdfunding. Like, me and when I say we, I mean uh, Dom and I, uh, because, like, we're both, like, basically 50-50 on the game now because uh, he, he's helped design it, too. And, like, so he's very much part of it. Um, and so, yeah, just how do, how do we get it into people's hands? Um, everyone who's played it, uh, maybe, okay, 95% of the people who've played it, like, have asked me afterwards, like, how do I get a copy of this game? And then I, like, shout at them. Or I don't shout, but, like, I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so so we did that, like, initial 50 print run. Um, and we did make, like, actually a ton of money off of it. Um, so, so, like, because it wasn't, like, this huge print run. So, like, it wasn't, like, this crazy discount that we had. Um, yeah, so that's that's the biggest issue that I'm finding right now. All right, Damien, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Damien Summer is designer of the Yog and Without Question, and uh, the game is available at your local Damien Summer. He's still figuring out the distribution thing. Now, the art of this game is absolutely fantastic. It's done by a guy named Dom2D, uh, who lives in Montreal. Um, Damien briefly mentioned him in an interview. If you're going to get these cards, it, the art alone is worth it. It's a really funny game, but man, those cards look real nice. Let's go back to computers for a bit. David Dufresne is a French documentary director. He lives in Montreal, and almost every day of the past year, he's worked for 20 hours on his newest documentary, Fort McMoney. What makes this weird is that Fork Money came out two months ago. So, turns out Fork Money is an ongoing video game about the boomtown of Fort McMurray. You have reached the end of the road, at the world's edge. Fort McMurray, an area the size of Florida, larger than Hungary. You are embarking on a documentary game in which everything is real. The places, the events... The characters. The choices you will make will determine your experience and will affect the other players in the game. Okay, uh, I love to find new ways to tell stories in each project I do. This is David. The web documentary I did before called Prison Valley uh, four years ago, it was it was a web documentary. It was a documentary with some game logic. This time, for, for McMurray, I wanted to do more and to uh, offer a real game. 
a real game with reality. I think the web gives us a lot of uh, opportunities to tell new stories in uh, not new stories, the same stories as before, because we already do the same story, but in a new way. And uh, the game documentary is is a kind of a new way to tell stories. So it was, uh, at first it was um, because I love to to find a new um, new way to tell stories. And the second part is uh, the fact that a, a city like Fort McMurray is uh, perfect to do a game because it's a very North American growing boomtown city. Uh, there is no city like this anywhere in the world, I think. Um, and uh, my idea was to, to do uh, like a SimCity for real. And uh, to do a SimCity for real, you need an American city, a North American city. So it was the, um, yeah, both, uh, both uh, reasons. For those of you who don't live in Canada, Fort McMurray is the platonic ideal of an oil town. All the biggest Canadian oil companies work in the mines around Fort McMurray, and it's become a focal point for human rights issues, environmental problems, massive population growth, decaying infrastructure. So David went all the way to northern Alberta to film this multi-part documentary, and then teamed up with a game design company, Toxa, to make a several-hour-long game. Now, my biggest question when I talked to him was, why? Documentaries seem to be dictatorial. I made this movie to teach you about this story. In Fort McMoney, though, players can dictate the path of interviews and explore the town as much or as little as they like. Depending on how you play it, it could be about environmental issues or oil lobbying or poverty or all of the above. Yes, I used to be um, an hardcore gamer 20 years ago. Uh, now my kids are players, and I see and I saw my kids and I see my kids playing. And I, and I read a lot of uh, articles, a lot of research about the game logic. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm more interested by the game logic than by the game themselves. Um, and uh, yes, uh, you know, Fort McMoney is like an homage to SimCity and Myst. Uh, I mean, it's like a, a simulation city and a simulation game, I mean, and a point-and-click game. Uh, I think game is a perfect tool to learn. And uh, it was the idea behind uh, Format Money, use, to use game logic to get people involved in uh, big subjects like uh, the oil industry, the oil addiction, and uh, our civilization choice uh, based on the oil industry, based on the oil. I mean, what is the most important is for McMurray is our choice of the oil. And if we, if you want to get people involved in this subject, game could be a very good tool. The the one thing though, and that this is what always puzzle this always held me back on mist, is that you there's sometimes the risk of uh, getting stuck wandering around. 
that you kind of may not get the information you need in the right order. Was that something that you had in mind when building um, the yes, game world? Yes, yes. You know, when I when I came to my producer, I, um, I told them, okay, let's do a program with eight hours of video. And they say, but nobody will see eight hours of video. And I say, yes, but it's not the problem. Uh, we have to show the most things we can do. And uh, if someone uh, wants to spend eight hours to watch video about format money, he could. And um, and if someone wants to see only five minutes, he could too. Uh, that's That's how the things are now. I mean, uh, some people uh, watch uh, very quickly a, a film on TV, and some people go to cinema. And uh, so when I wrote the script, when I did the editing, I was it, it, what you say was very in my mind. How can we tell something interesting? And with the risk that some people miss a lot of things. Now, of course, to make a documentary, you often need uh, 10 times the magnitude of the length of the film. So if it's two hours, you need at least 20 hours of film. Um, this is a 10-hour game at least. How much got left on the cutting room floor? Uh, I think we got more than uh, 60 hours only for the interviews and uh, 50 hours of footage. So it means, I think it's the same proportion than for a linear film. Uh, we, we, we did a lot of footage. We, 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 we shoot a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot during 60 days. Uh, we, we went there five or six times and it was the key. I think to me, the first the documentary is take your time. Take your time to film, take your time to shoot, take your time to smell, take your time to talk, take your time to listen to people. And with that answered, I was about to say my goodbyes when David stopped me. If you want to record, you can, but um, I, I think there is, there is a big danger to, to play with reality. And this is the reason why it's so exciting. He wanted to talk about the ethics of game design. We have to be very serious, very rigorous, very tough on fact, tough on everything, because it's a game. And, and, and because it's a game, it's so difficult to do. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's strange because people come on Pharmac Money and they, and they say, oh, that's cool, it's easy, I can go there, I can go there. But what they don't see is what so much, so many energy uh, we, we need to do it. Because uh, we, we don't know exactly how the people, the player, will react. If they're going to think everything is fake, fake or everything is real. And it's, it's very interesting to think about this. I, for example, my first uh, web documentary, Prison Valley, um, uh, is one of the inspiration of a new game, indie game called 
Prison Architect. Prison Architect, that's the game by Introversion Software in England. In England, absolutely. And they did an interview and uh, they say, okay, we, we did a lot of research and one day we, we, we saw Prison Valley and we were very interested by the, by the, the documentary. When it comes to portraying the life of prisoners and the situation in Colorado, as you did in your documentary Prison Valley, what do you think the risks are or what's at stake? What I saw uh, in Colorado when I did my movie, uh, it, was, it was crazy. I saw prisoners build prisons. And, and I, I mean, the reality is crazy. And I'm not sure that a game could be as risky as the reality itself. And if a game like Prison Architects could um, um, let people think about the reality, the, the game will be a, a very good thing. All right. I'd like to thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, <laughs> don't, no, no, my pleasure. Sure, but I'm sick and, and I'm very sorry for my accent. David DuFrance is the director of Fort McMoney, which is produced by the National Film Board in partnership with two European newspapers. It's playable in English, French, and German. One last thing before we end the episode for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about board games and adventure games. So I want to give you guys a little taste of that by replaying a bit of our interview with Jordan Wiseman. Now, Jordan designed the tabletop RPG Shadowrun, and he had a hand in building the video game version Shadowrun Returns. And he talks about moving the murky rules of a tabletop RPG to hard code. Well, they're very, they're really different, uh, different design processes, and and they're really different kind of playing, you know, uh, player interaction models, right? Uh, uh, the game we did, um, Shadowrun Returns, uh, is about as close to the tabletop experience as computer games get, um, due to its, um, you know, like when as soon as you get into combat, you're in a turn-based model. And you have a very high fidelity of control on every character in your party. So that's about as close to tabletop as you can get. But even that is very different, right? There, uh, in tabletop, uh, the the social dynamic of the room is by far the thing. Uh, and so it took you all night to kind of play through something that might have been only, you know, uh, 20 minutes worth of real-time experience in some cases, you know, and it doesn't make a difference. It's like that was all part of the fun, you know, in a, in a video game, which is doesn't have that kind of social dynamic, right? It has, you know, uh, it's a much more intimate relationship with the directly with the and it's an argument player. It, need, it needs to move along quicker, right? So we needed to, uh, because it, it just took you all night to do 20 minutes of play, you'd be really bored. So we need to be, you know, I think the balancing points for us were, were how to take the depth of the pen and paper game and yet put it into a time frame and an accessibility um, that made it playable by a modern audience, uh, you know, on a pace that, uh, that maintained their interest and immersion into the game. Yet, like I say, still giving them enough controls, tactical controls to really feel like they're, they're getting the depth of the game system uh, available to them. And um, how successful do you feel um, you guys were in implementing that? Uh, I would f phrase it largely successful, not 
successful. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I'm extremely proud what our team managed to do with the, the time and resources we had available, uh, which, you know, in the, in the scope of video game development was very, you know, not very much. Um, uh, I think we did a, we did a pretty damn good job. Uh, the, I think we captured, you know, a wide diversity of, of, of archetypes which is right. I mean, often games will only give you a single character to play and then can mold the entire campaign around emphasizing the aspects of that one character. Well, we wanted to really open that up to a pen and paper RPG feel, so we let players create any character they wanted, uh, starting with a base of six archetypes and then customize from there. That made our job much harder, um, but I think for the most part, we pulled it off. There's, there's definitely things that you know need tweaking, like we did some tweaks and we're working more on like the, the physical adapts and, and certainly places that we want to expand more in terms of being able to, to add more depth of play for the different diversity of characters in Shadowrun. Um, you know, and I think uh, uh, we had chosen to go, uh, the engine we built for, for user-generated content um, uh, moved us in a, in a way that's very scene-oriented. Right, um, and uh, so it's not a true—it's not a true open by any means, uh, which is very hard to author for. And uh, context also requires a lot more content because the audience can go anywhere, and so that wasn't really an option for us. Um, and also, we felt that given the kind of uh, again how important generic content is to long-term. Uh, uh, Shadowrun Returns community uh, that we wanted to make sure that we were creating something that uh, that was within the scope of, of motivated people to to create. So I you know again I, I'd give us a pretty high marks, but you know for improvement. I mean the one thing that is always the key difference between as you mentioned um, between uh, RPGs and video games is that is the as the social element. Um, do you feel that by, by putting in this ed- editor, it kind of it gives some leeway towards um, building uh, a social element with the game? That was that was our hope is that um, that the the editing the editor releasing all of the content of the campaign in in the editor format so that people could build on it and do whatever they wanted with it um, would uh, in- empower uh, to uh, create experiences and and have kind of as you say, kind of an abstracted form of that social dynamic where you're creating, you know, and you can create something just for your friend and only share it with your friend, uh, or you can create it and share it with the entire community or, or any, um, and so it does have that abstracted form of socialization. Uh, you know, we have uh, talked to a lot of players and that the thing that they would love um, it next is is a cooperative play mode where player, you know, player from around the country or the world could you know get together you know kind of get your old your old gaming group back together online and do a cooperative play against uh against the run we would love that too um we're going to investigate kind of uh, as we start to pull things off our plate like you know, the localization and the tablet ports and linux uh and berlin uh as we start getting some of those things finished we'll start to spend some time looking at well what would it really take open the engine up into that play mode uh, and then you know we'll come back to the audience with you know some ideas Jordan Wiseman leads Hairbrain Scheme Studios 
Shadowrun Returns is available for PC, Mac, iOS, and Android. Their new DLC, Dragonfall, comes out later this month. We have a full interview with him on our site. That's it for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm featured editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Damien Summer. And... David Dufresne. Plus help from Jordan Wiseman. For an extended version of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. And remember to leave a review on iTunes so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. But don't leave a negative review or we'll take your soul and dip it inside hot chocolate. Plus, check out our website for our theme month, What's a Game? Uh, this week's article should be an op-ed on the semantics of the word video game. One word or two. Am I a jerk for bringing it up or not? And our interview next week will be on board games and moving between videos to boards. Uh, we're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and we run every Tuesday and Thursday at 1 p.m. And we update the website every Sunday. You can find us on Twitter at built to play and me personally at Florcon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And uh, let me tell you, chocolate dip sold, delicious, and a pretentious treat for the semantic video game blog. Thank you so much for listening.